Hello and welcome to the Medreach Podcast. This is episode 33 and this is part two of our podcast titled Damage Control Resuscitation. And we're back speaking with Pete Davis, who's a consultant in emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine in Glasgow and has also worked for the British Army as a military medic for a number of years. So let's just jump right back in. Okay, so we've now arrived in the emergency room and what what, what are the big differences there's a kind of different thinking strategy now isn't there in a way a lot of the same principles will, uh, will apply and we'll come to some of those differences but what is the the from a dcr perspective what is the role of the emergency room now in that phase those four phases so the the priorities are um ongoing resuscitation needs of the patient um the need to differentiate the patient's injuries and then form a management plan and strategy based upon those predicted or defined injuries. Okay, so let's just think about the ongoing resuscitation. CABC, I presume it still applies in this setting. So let's go back through and just think about, well, what 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 might we do differently in this setting that was not achievable in the pre-hospital setting? So, so looking at external hemorrhage, it was contained. What would we be thinking about or doing for that in the emergency room? Well, if the um, external hemorrhage has been controlled by pre-hospital measures, there's really not much we need need to do at that stage. But if there's evidence of ongoing hemorrhage, um, then there's an opportunity to exchange the pre-hospital tourniquet for uh, a pneumatic tourniquet uh, in order to gain control. And probably best to do that in the presence of a surgeon, you know, someone the, who can assess. Yeah, exactly. And for the surgeons to uh, to, to to have a look at the the nature of the wound. Uh, or the nature of the traumatic amputation, for instance, and uh, just start to plan a surgical strategy. And what about A and B? If 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 it's been patients ventilated, um, uh, if the patient's been attended by a by a medical team pre-hospital, um, then A and B probably will have been secured. If not, then this is the chance for the patient to receive an emergency anaesthetic uh, and to be uh, mechanically ventilated and for the chest to be decompressed if required as well, or the formal insertion of uh, of intercostal drains uh, in the emergency room. So probably one of the biggest differences between pre-hospital and, and hospital is the blood product resuscitation side of things and what's available. And, and so what, what you work in both environments. So um, what... what there's obviously machines. We'll talk about those in a, in a second, Rotem and the like, that, that can help guide strategies, but they're not all available in all hospitals. So let's just think about um, if, if we didn't have those machines available, um, what is the ideal um, fluid resuscitation for, for trauma? What, what, is, what are the correct ratios? What are the, the correct ingredients? So, so if you could tell us what you think about um, in, in the emergency room. So what we're trying to achieve is a is a balanced hemostatic resuscitation. And although the exact ratios of the different blood products varies from center to center, and there's still a little bit of debate around it, um, military practice and the practice in a lot of trauma centers has been to give packed red cells, fresh frozen plasma and platelets in a one to one to one ratio empirically. And and how do you find that normally working in, in day-to-day practice? I mean, we, we often don't get them equally arriving in equal ratios in, 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 the, in the department. So do, do you just kind of start with what's immediately available or required, often O negative blood if, if necessary, and then you kind of achieve that balance ratio as other products arrive? Is that kind of how it typically works? So, so your initial... Um, and your initial management is going to be with um, with emergency blood, which is O negative blood, or you can give O positive blood to uh, to injured males uh, or, or women of non childbearing age. 
um, and and there'll be universal donor um, fresh frozen plasma available as well. But once um, formal cross-matching has taken place, then there's an opportunity if there are ongoing transfusion requirements to sort of catch up and make sure that the products have been given in that one-to-one-to-one ratio. And again, I think it's really important to emphasize that there's uh, there's no real place for crystalloid um, in, in, in a balanced hemostatic resuscitation. Okay, so if, if you're lucky enough to be in a center um, which has the technology available, we now have machines that can help us make decisions on the appropriate products to be using. Do you mind, for those that aren't familiar with them, what machines are available and just basically how they work and how they guide your management? So there are two forms of kind of point of care testing available. One is thromboelastography or TEG. The other is rotational thromboelastometry or ROTEM. And in my institution, we've got a Rotem machine in the emergency room. And what this machine does is it takes a, a blood sample, a, a sample of the patient's blood, um, allows it to clot, and then it subjects that clot to stress and see what the um, what what blood factors are missing or need to be enhanced in order for the patient to be able to, um, to make his own uh, ideal clot. Really, there are only two samples that we need off a trauma patient. One is an arterial blood gas and the other is a Rotem sample. Okay. And that gives us the information that we need to manage that patient. Okay. Do you mind if I ask you probably a basic question, just because I'm not familiar with, with Rotem? It, does it, what, what sort of printout do you get? Is it, does it tell you you need this amount of this product or is it um, something that you kind of have to interpret, or, or how, how does it? How does that work? Rotem gives you a graphical representation of the quality of the clot that's being formed by the patient, uh, and what that enables you to do. You have to interpret it, but it enables you to decide whether you need to give relatively more units of one of the particular blood products so it may be that actually you need to give more platelets it may be that the patient requires more fresh frozen plasma um, or it may be that then they require cryoprecipitate but it's still an empiric an empiric administration yes so you're still giving a balanced sort of uh, um, ratio of, of of blood products but you may choose to add in a little bit extra of one or more of the products depending on what the the machine is kind of suggesting is that fair yeah so uh, I've heard recently there's quite a lot of debate about whole blood and there's a lot of impracticalities, obviously. Um, any any thoughts? I mean, obviously it seems the right thing to do. You know, if you've lost blood, why not replace it with the most similar um, um, product that you can find? And whole blood, I guess, is probably that. But it's not something that's currently in UK practice. Is that right? What, what about the military? What, what, what are your overall thoughts on whole blood? Ideally, we we would replace like for like, and we'd replace blood with with whole blood. But there are technical difficulties around storing whole blood. So whole blood's shelf life is probably forty eight hours, um, and then there's the risk of transmission of blood borne viruses as well. We have some experience of using um, whole blood in the management of military trauma victims, and there's no doubt whatsoever that it's very effective in helping to reverse coagulopathy. Um, but uh, the blood needs to be collected from a pre-screened um, donor panel to mitigate against the risk of BBV, bloodborne virus transmission. Uh, and again, its storage is probably maximal of uh, 48 hours shelf life. And I guess that's probably achievable in the military when you can pre-screen your colleagues that, that you work alongside. That's probably not practical in, in, in the emergency. Yeah, currently room. it's not practical in civil practice, yeah. Um, I've heard talk of some kind of dried 
blood products. Um, what what are the advantages of those, and what any any we should know about? If plasma has been frozen, it, it takes a minimum of twenty minutes um, in order to thaw it ready for administration. So freeze dried plasma has become available, so called lyophilized plasma. Nothing new about this in some ways. The Americans and the French experimented with it as long ago as uh, as the mid forties during World War Two, but it's seen a resurgence recently um, because of the of the the practical ease of carrying. Um, and reconstituting freeze-dried plasma in the field for pre-hospital use. Okay, so we, we obviously we've talked about the, the 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 type of blood product, but it's a difficult decision sometimes. And I've seen wide and varied practice on this: is how much to give. You know, what what are the main factors that you take in when you're kind of considering you know okay we, we don't need to give any more blood product right now or when do we need to give more what 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 things are you weighing up to to know how much blood product to give choosing your endpoint for hemostatic resuscitation is not an exact science but it's going to be based on some physiological parameters such as uh, heart rate systolic blood pressure and we're probably aiming for around 100 millimeters of mercury um, and urine output but there are other factors that we'll also consider, um, such as uh, serial arterial blood gas estimations. In other words, um, is the acidemia correcting? Um, and we'll also um, look at ongoing coagulopathy as well uh, with repeated uh, ROTEM measurements, for instance. So obviously uh, blood pressure is one of the, the, the kind of common endpoints that people can use um, in these kind of situations. And, and I've, um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with permissive hypotension what, what what does that mean to you what one when is it appropriate when if ever do you adopt that kind of strategy um the the concept of permissive hypotension came about largely in the management of uh, ballistic type injuries where the the thought was if you restore normal blood pressure you put the clot that the patient is forming under stress in other words you can pop the clot and so it was felt that if you allowed um uh, the blood pressures to remain at sort of subnormal values, that this would put less pressure um, on the patient's own clotting. The place for permissive hypotension in trauma really is, is, is limited to the management of penetrating torso or penetrating abdominal trauma, either caused through ballistic injury, that's through gunshot wound um, or, or shrapnel type missile injury um, or knife trauma. There's really no place for permissive hypotension uh, in the management of the blunt trauma victim. And one of the, one of the key cornerstones, if you like, of, of, of managing a patient um, with permissive hypotension is the expectation that they're going to go very, very rapidly from the emergency room to the operating theatre where surgical vascular control can be achieved. So let's talk about the control of bleeding. It's limited to what we can do. We've already spoken about external hemorrhage, but internal hemorrhage, there are some options um, in, in centres specifically, more, more of the trauma centres. But what, what are some of the, the, the options that are now available? Well, we've talked a little bit about the management of, uh, of external compressible hemorrhage. And we've also talked about the, the difficult junctional areas, the root of the neck, the axillae and the groins where, um, where it's difficult to compress hemorrhage and where other measures may need to be used. 
Well, ultimately, if we can't provide um, control externally, or if we're trying to control hemorrhage within the, the torso, within the chest, uh, or within the abdomen, then we're looking at surgical control. But as a temporizing measure, purely as a lifeboat or temporizing measure again, there are one or two techniques that might be available in the emergency room. Uh, and one of those is, uh, is known as Reboa or retrograde endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, where a balloon catheter is inserted, usually through one of the, um, uh, one or a, a, of the femoral arteries um, and, uh, and, then, and then placed um, in the descending aorta and the balloon inflated to provide tamponade. And that's really just removing blood flow to the extremities and maintaining central circulation to kind of perfuse the brain and heart. And, and Yeah, it's an endovascular technique. It's less invasive than, for instance, the surgical cross-clamping um, of the descending aorta, which would usually be done either through a thoracotomy incision uh, or through uh, a laparotomy incision. Okay, so we've kind of done what we can do in the emergency room and we're now, I think, at that interface between phase two and phase three, which is the surgical approach. Um, so what, what are the important things to think about now in terms of when surgery is appropriate and what type of surgery is appropriate? Okay, well, these patients are on the cusp of life. They've, they've entered the lethal triad. They're acidemic, they're coagulopathic, and they're hypothermic. And the, the crux of it is that they do not have the physiological reserve to withstand a long operative um, procedure. In other words, they, they can't go to the operating room for, say, a, a three-hour intermedullary nailing of a femoral fracture or for complex reanastomosis of, um, of torn bowel. They, ju they just simply don't have the physiological reserve to, to withstand that. And so the the kind of surgical procedures that they need to be um, that need to be performed have, by definition, to be very time limited. So surgery may be appropriate, really, for one of two reasons: to uh, to arrest um, ongoing hemorrhage and to minimise contamination if the bowel has been breached or the urogenital tract has been breached and the uh, and the um, the peritoneum has become contaminated. So when is the right time? This is a difficult question. There's so many different complex issues and so many variables. Um, but what, what, when is the appropriate time for that to happen? If there's evidence, clear evidence of ongoing hemorrhage that you're unable to achieve hemostatic control in the emergency room and the patient remains acidemic, coagulopathic and hypothermic, um, then it may be that uh, that surgical control of hemorrhage is required, and that's the point at which to go to the operating room, and that move needs to be made as rapidly as possible. There's often a wee bit of debate about when to CT, when not to CT, but I'm presuming CT is still, you've managed to, to achieve a degree of stability, we might be able to get CT. Um, if you've not managed to achieve that degree of stability, then perhaps uh, surgery is, is better than uh, before imaging. Is that fair? So CT is really important in defining the true extent of a patient's injuries. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, but it may be that gaining vascular control, gaining surgical control actually trumps CT. And the need is really to go straight to the operating room, gain vascular control, fill the patient up, restore circulating volume, 
correct coagulopathy as much as possible and then move back to CT in order to define the injuries and then plan what further surgical management may be required. And you mentioned that that was not an atypical pathway in the military. You'd mentioned, can you just describe just briefly? What, yeah, what? so often um, with patients with, uh, with, say, bilateral um, lower limb amputations and perhaps involving a pelvic injury, that with ongoing hemorrhage, we'd just simply take those guys in uh, in Afghanistan into the operating room, um, gain uh, proximal control in the abdomen um, uh, to prevent hemorrhage. In other words, this would be clamping the iliac vessels. And once that procedure had been performed and the patient, patient could receive ongoing transfusion and then go to the CT scanner to define the true extent of their injuries. A- anything else that we should think about in terms of the surgery now it's obviously we're not doing it but anything that's important um, with regards surgery and in a damage resuscitation sense there are a couple of principles that underpin um, damage control surgery and one of which is that it's very much a time limited procedure um, the maximum time that a patient should be on the table for in a, in a damage control surgical um, um, scenario is around 40 minutes it's time limited. You, the surgeon does just what is necessary to preserve live tissue, but to cut out um, dead and devitalized tissue. Um, contamination is is washed out and, and minimalized. Um, and crucially, um, there's no attempt made to, to close the abdominal wall after a damage control laparotomy. The abdomen is left open and a transparent dressing is left op- over the abdominal wound. And the main reason for that is to mitigate against the risk of abdominal compartment syndrome. In terms of trauma, what what would be the typical pathophysiological reasons for developing um, compartment syndrome in the abdomen? So there's a massive systemic inflammatory response associated with the traumatic injuries themselves. But that SIRS is then multiplied by operating on the patient. And in particular, the bowel becomes really edematous. When the bowel, for instance, becomes really edematous within a closed abdominal cavity, um, then that pressure effect leads to ischemia of the bowel. And that's abdominal compartment syndrome. And so to mitigate against that, following a damage control laparotomy, the abdomen is left open uh, and a transparent sterile adhesive dressing is placed over the open abdominal wound. And then finally, phase four. I don't think we need to talk about it in detail, but what would be the core principles of phase four in this damage control situation? So our patient may go directly from the emergency room, bypassing phase three to phase four in the intensive care unit, or he or she may go via the operating theatre and and phase three um, to phase four in the ICU. And the principles of management in ICU are... Uh, aiming to restore normal physiology as much as possible, ongoing correction of the lethal triad of trauma of acidemia, um, hypothermia and coagulopathy, Um, optimizing ventilation, tissue perfusion and oxygenation, um, and planning the ongoing surgical program of definitive care that may be required for this patient. Okay, thank you very much. I think we've managed to pack up our package up our patient and, and send them off to ICU and, and they survived, you'd be glad to know. Um so thank you very much for that. I, I was wondering just as as a final couple of questions, if you don't mind, um obviously leadership 
I think is likely to play a big role in this. There's not just what we do, but there's how we deliver it and in what fashion and how quickly. And, and that, I think that takes a good leader. And, and I know you've had a lot of experience working with a lot of great leaders, both in military and pre-hospital. So it's a big topic. Um, so we don't want to go into it in detail, but are there any one or two little things that you've noticed great leaders do? Anything that you would like us to consider adopting into our practice? I think the trauma team leader has been likened to the conductor of a large symphony orchestra. Um, and that conductor, he or she, are tasked with bringing maybe a lot of virtuoso performers um, together to actually play in harmony. And that can be really challenging at the side of a, of a trauma patient in recess where you've got, on the one hand, perhaps hot-headed individuals, and on the other hand, more reticent individuals, and you're trying to bring out the best um, in everybody for the good of the patient. Secondly, I think a technique that I've employed and colleagues employ is that of a pause or so-called command huddle where you simply um, stop after the initial resuscitation has taken place and the key players get together um, at the side of the patient and agree amongst themselves what the injuries are that they've been, been able to define so far and what the best management strategy is going forward and then proceed with with ongoing resuscitation or then proceed with surgery. And it doesn't have to be a lengthy thing. It can be just yeah. quick pause, one minute, yeah. get everyone's opinion, make sure everyone's on the right track and then carry on moving yeah. forward, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter Davis, thank you very, very much for your time. You've been very patient. Um, I think there's been a lot of excellent information. If you don't mind, we always finish in a kind of similar fashion. I thought I would, firstly, maybe if there was any little take-home message, any any way you'd like to summarize what all of the information you've given us, what, what's the important parting message that you would like to leave the listeners in terms of damage control resuscitation? There are two main points. The first one is that Damage control resuscitation directly addresses the coagulopathy of trauma. Uh, and the second one is that survival trumps morbidity, that living on to fight another day um, is more important for the patient than undergoing um, a, a prolonged series of surgical definitive repair procedures. And finally, the way I always finish all of these podcasts, if you don't mind, I like to take you back on my time machine. And you've obviously a lot of experience, military and pre-hospital and emergency medicine, lots and lots and lots of different things. Um, what have you gained in all of your experience? What one little piece of advice, if you could go back and meet yourself leaving medical school, um, what, what one bit of advice would you give yourself um, starting their career? So in order to become an effective trauma team leader, the thing that I've found most valuable of all um, has been the human factors training that I've been exposed to, primarily through my association with, it, with aviation, through working with the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service. And of that human factors training, um, I would say it's learning when to be a leader and to be assertive and equally balancing that with, with knowing when to be um, a listener and a follower. Dr. Peter Davis, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Owen, very much for giving me the opportunity to come and talk with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
So many, many thanks to Pete Davis for all his thoughts on damage control resuscitation. I think my main take-home points from this episode are number one for a balanced hemostatic resuscitation. He would recommend military-style practice, which is a one-to-one-to-one ratio of red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma and platelets. Typically, you start with what is immediately available, O negative, but it can be O positive in males or women of non-childbearing age. And then as blood products become available, you try to achieve a balanced ratio. Number two, to control internal hemorrhage. Uh, There are fairly limited options in the emergency room, but there are some temporising measures. One of those uh, is Reboa, which is essentially feeding a wire and balloon in through one of the femoral arteries up to the descending aorta, where you uh, inflate the balloon, which includes blood flow to the distal damaged blood vessels of the abdomen and pelvis. Number three, damage control surgery is really for trauma patients on the cusp of life. They are likely to have ongoing bleeding, they have entered the lethal triad, and they would not survive a lengthy definitive procedure. So the purpose of this is to arrest any ongoing bleeding, to minimise any contamination, ideally in theatre for less than 40 minutes. They will leave with an open abdomen with the intention to return for more definitive surgery when they are stable and able to tolerate it. And number four is abdominal compartment syndrome, which is the result of a massive systemic inflammatory response, initially to the injury itself, but then coupled with the tissue injury from the operation. And the bowel can become really edematous, and if this occurs in an enclosed space, then it can lead to bowel ischemia. So they often, after damage control surgery, will leave the abdomen open um, in the intent to return for more definitive care when the patient is more stable. So many, many thanks again to Pete Davis for his time. Please visit stmungos-ed.com for the show notes as well as lots of other additional resources for your enjoyment. Many, many thanks to you for listening. And until next time, take care.